Hello everyone and welcome to Amanpour from Ukraine. Here's what's coming up. Plugging gaps on Ukraine's front lines. My report as the fight continues despite dwindling ammunition. Then, as dozens of journalists die in the wars shaking our world, I'm joined by Diane Foley, whose son James was killed by ISIS while reporting in Syria. Why she and co-author Colin McCann are telling her story in American Mother. Also ahead. We almost tended to believe that he became immortal. Russian investigative journalist Evgenia Albaz discusses the legacy of her friend Alexei Navalny. She tells Michelle Martin why she still has hope for Russia today. And finally, choreographer Alexei Ratmansky on swapping Moscow for New York after Russia's Ukraine invasion. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiana Manpour in Kyiv. Also in occupied Ukraine today was Moscow's top general, Valery Gerasimov, handing out medals to troops who fought to take the key town of Advika over the weekend, a strategic location that Ukraine's foreign minister told me on this program last night would not have fallen to the Russians if the vital ammunition supply line was not blocked in Washington. This weekend marks two years since Vladimir Putin ordered the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. But his forces were unable to take this capital or topple the government. And with the support of NATO, Ukraine has been holding Russia off for those two years. But today, with a critical shortage of weapons and ammunition, Ukraine is frantically trying to plug the gaps on the front lines, as we discovered for this report. Snow falls softly on new recruits for the Ukrainian Army 3rd Assault Brigade. Drill sergeants push them through their paces with urgent basic training for the trenches, urban warfare and assault maneuvers. Every woman and man counts now for a battle that seems to have returned to the dire days at the start. 28-year-old Serhi came back from Lithuania to serve two weeks ago, despite his health. What's wrong with you? Uh, it's asthma. But right now, uh, we need to take our best man. And no matter what, I will, I will serve my country until the victory. The brigade says it's training professional fighters, not cannon fodder like Russia. Their soldiers helped evacuate survivors of the battle for Avdivka, where Russia has now raised its flag. But many of their wounded were left behind. Just watch this video call between a severely injured soldier, Ivan, and his panic-stricken sister, Katerina. Ivan and his comrades never made it. Ukraine says there was a deal Russia would evacuate them and exchange prisoners. Instead, Russia released video of them dead. The brigade says they were shot.
These are desperate times in Ukraine's fight to survive. They need to replenish the ranks of the dead and injured. And even here at the Superhumans facility in the western city of Lviv, therapists and prosthetic specialists work around the clock giving these war amputees a second chance and even a return to the front lines. 25-year-old Anastasia Savka is an army sniper. She stepped on a landmine in November near the Zaporizhia front. And she tells me they are scattered there like snowdrops in spring, like daisies in summer. We couldn't get out for a long time because we were under very heavy fire, she tells me. To be honest, we were ready to die there. The attacks were so close and we were thinking this was the end. Olga Rudneva is CEO of this center, which is supported by a Ukrainian businessman and the American philanthropist Howard Buffett. 80% of the patients are military, many of them multiple amputees. And that's because, Olga says, the wounded cannot get out of the battle zone during the so-called golden hour to save their limbs. People are evacuated for 10 hours by comrades very often because Russians are shelling our medics. So by the time they arrive at stabilization point, we have to cut them high because of the tourniquets. So that's why we have multiple uh, amputations. Not only are they outmanned, they are also outgunned. The gridlock in Congress over military aid is showing up at the front. And time is not their friend. We reach Sergeant Mikola, who's also serving now on the Zaporizhia front line. Do you have enough weapons? Do you have enough people? Do you have enough ammunition? Of course we don't, he says. There is a catastrophic shortage of people, the same with weapons. There aren't enough shells for artillery and tanks, or the tanks and artillery themselves. On a brief hiatus in the rear, they've had to buy their own mortar, small caliber, just for self-defense. Problem is, no ammunition. Anastasia practices perfecting her balance, her endurance, regaining the strength to shoulder her weapons, and she wants to go back to the front. I think anything is possible, she says, but whatever happens, we all need to fight this together because the enemy is advancing. No one wants their children to still be fighting the war they and their parents have been fighting ever since Putin's first invasion a decade ago. Now here in Ukraine, it is not just the soldiers under fire. It is, of course, civilians, including journalists, some 26 of whom have been killed since Russia's invasion of Crimea back in 2014. It's happening in many of the global wars, but perhaps the toll in Gaza is the most appalling right now. At least 88 reporters and media workers have been killed in Israel's offensive on the enclave and they have died since Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. That's according to the Committee to Protect Journalists. My next guest knows the pain of this more than almost anyone. Diane Foley lost her son James 10 years ago when he was covering the Syrian civil war and was kidnapped and then murdered by ISIS. Now a committed campaigner to help people like him, Foley has written her story in her memoir, American Mother. And she joins me from London alongside the celebrated author Colin McCann, who wrote the book with her. Welcome to you both. 
Diane, you know, I wonder what it took for you to distill all the pain and heartbreak that you've been going through to get it down on paper and write a story for everybody else to read about and understand. Well, it took meeting Colin McCann. It really did. I really wanted to tell the story, Christiane, because I, I do think that's a way of keeping people alive, but I really needed a partnership with someone who knew how to do it. So we, um, once we met one another, it became clear that Colm would be the one who could help me do that. And let me ask Colm, why did Diane choose you? I know there's a connection with Jim. Well, it's an extraordinary story, really. Um, and, uh, when, when that iconic photograph uh, was shown across the world in the, uh, 10 years ago of Jim in the Syrian desert in the orange jumpsuit, um, the world was shocked. But at the same time, I was sent a, a, another photograph of Jim at a happier time uh, when he was in a bunker um, and he was actually reading a novel of mine called uh, Let the Great World Spin. And when that happened, for me, all the oxygen went from the air and I felt a connection with Jim. I felt a connection with Diane. And I thought um, that somehow this story um, I, I would become a, a powerful thing, which it did for me uh, seven years later when I actually got to meet Diane. And... Um, came upon one of the most courageous uh, people that I have ever met in my life. And we had a chance then to, to penetrate into the, the dark mysteries of this, um, of this particular story and even get a chance to meet uh, her son's killer together. I'm going to get to that in a moment because that is an extraordinary story which you bookend the, the, the beginning and the end of the book with that. Um, Diane, I don't know where you got the strength to do that. But first, I want to ask you something that really struck me about how you started to get to know Jim better almost after he died. And I want you to read. We've asked you to choose a, pa a passage and read to us from your own heart about how you got to know him through the testimonies and the memories of those who had worked and been with him. Sure. Um, years later, after Jim was killed, John and I would realize that we got to know him from the stories of others. Everyone seemed to have a Jim story, and we became the repositories for those stories. I take a sort of solace in this. We get to know him afterwards, and so he lived on. In a way, we are still getting to know him. And another thing you said, Diane, was that for you as a parent, there is no term for a parent who's lost a child. Describe that, that thought, because I hadn't even thought about that until I saw it in black and white in your book. Well, um, really, uh, Colm was the one who um, had mentioned that, and I think it's the truth. It's something that none of us as parents ever want to think about, and um, we all want to and expect to go before our children. So um, it is true, though, that there is not a term for that. Um, mm. We have, you know, we have yeah. widowers said, and we have widows yeah. and, mm -hmm. and we have orphans and, uh, and yet we have no specific term for that sort of, um, I, I think that, 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 that terrible grief uh, that, that a parent experiences when, when he or she has lost a child. 
It, it is such an amazing concept to put before us because I think you just don't think of that fact and it sort of takes away a little bit potentially from, from what you're going through. Diane, tell, okay, let, let, us, let us talk about how you opened the book. What on earth made you want to meet the killer, one of the so-called Beatles? This is a British uh, citizen and they had captured and kidnapped Jim and he was, he was the killer. Tell us about how you went to see him and, and why. Alexander, both um, Alexander and his colleague, El Shafi El Sheikh, were extradited to Virginia in 2020, um, two years after being captured abroad. Um, and Alexander pleaded guilty to all eight counts. He, um, said he did not need a trial, and instead he pleaded guilty and was willing to speak to victims. So I knew Jim would have wanted to speak to him, and he would have not wanted me to be afraid to speak with him. Um, it was just obvious to me, um, except that my family wanted no part of it. So when um, Colm was um, generous enough and curious enough to accompany me, um, we did. We both went to speak with him. I wanted to hear him and also to tell him about who Jim really was. Wow. Colm, I mean, what were you thinking? And I'm going to ask you to read a passage um, about that meeting and about what went through it. But what were you thinking when a bereaved mother thought that she could reach into the soul or the conscience of a killer who had killed her son. It was one of the most extraordinary moments of my life. We walked into a room in a Virginia courthouse, a big windowless uh, room. There were a lot of people there. There were prosecutors, there were defense, there were uh, FBI agents, and there were security guards. And then Diane walked in, and then suddenly Alexander Cody is sitting there. He's in his prison jumpsuit. He's got shackles on his ankles. And Diane goes and sits not four feet, from um, her son's killer, and she says hello. And then for the next two days, and then one day, uh, six months later after that, we sat and we talked, and we talked about faith, and we talked about conscience, and we talked about compassion and forgiveness and violence and war. And it was, um, to me, to watch this uh, moment was uh, bringing all these issues together um, and compressed in an almost nuclear energy. Um, and there was a lot of emotion there. There was a lot of tears. There was a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, you know, bubbling anger, uh, even on my, on my part. And I wanted to ask him some tough questions. You know, did you kill Jim? Where is the, 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 the body buried? All of these different things that were going on. And yet we felt, I think it's fair to say, Diane, we felt um, a, a, a sort of understanding uh, of this man and what he had done to. So in the book, um, uh, we get a chance when... Uh, you have that passage. There's a, there's a little section just um, uh, when, when, when yeah. Diane leaves the room. When she leaves the room, Cody sits down slowly, a little stunned, as if he has just flown into the window pane of his life. Another silence has descended all around. He is asked what it meant to shake her hand. He nods and creases his own hands together. 
He has not intentionally touched the hand of a woman in a long time, he says, not since years ago when he touched the hand of his wife, and he suspects he will never touch the hand of a woman again. And why then, he is asked, did he take Diane's hand? He ponders a moment and he says, she's like a mother to us all. Gosh, Diane, it, it is an incredible thing. You know, tell, tell me what you felt uh, after you shook his hand and, and when you heard he had said that. Well, I did not hear that. This was at the end of the final day we saw him. And, um, you know, it wasn't that easy, that hard to hear um, Alexander, partly because he's the same age as several of our sons. He's in that same time in his life. And my biggest feeling was deep sadness for everyone. I mean, we had lost our beloved Jim and, um, you know, he's lost his freedom forever. He'll never see his family or um, go back to his home country again. So that's what hatred begets. It just begets lots of suffering. And, um, so I, I thought that might be this last time I ever saw him. So not knowing anything about the um, Muslim tradition of not touching a man's hand. As an American, the only way I could say goodbye was to offer my hand um, and to say goodbye to him. So I really didn't think about it. And then I just walked out. So it, the, what the words he spoke uh were words he spoke to call him afterwards. Mm -hmm. You know, Diane, I, I know that you have a deep faith and I know that that has gotten you, you know, through a lot and that, you know, maybe you look at certain things that others wouldn't be able to look at because, you know, because of your faith. And I just wonder, you know, that people said, oh, yeah, you know, Alexander Cote was just grandstanding and trying to get good, good marks, you know, for, for being nice and polite with you and trying to make people think he was a decent, well, he was a repentant human being. What, what, you know, the question I'm asking is, because it brings back to me the, the image of Mrs. Lifshitz, the elderly lady who was released very, very early on by Hamas and who turned around and either shook his hand or said shalom something. And there was such a hubbub about it. And yet her daughter said she was just being a human being in the situation in which she found herself. So I just wonder if, if Diane, you can just talk about that a little bit and Colm as well, because you've investigated that in different conflicts and different situations. I feel building those human channels is essential. I mean, look at, look at the suffering in Ukraine, the suffering in, um, in Gaza right now. I mean, we need to at least try to talk to one another and try to find ways to build, um, begin to understand. Um, if we just stay in our bubbles and hate one another, um, we get nowhere, really. It just, um, we get the suffering we're enduring and you're witnessing right now in Ukraine. So, um, yeah, I feel it's essential um, that we try. And Jim felt that way. Jim was, that was one of the reasons he was in Syria, because he wanted those of us in the West to understand, to begin to understand the yearning for freedom that sometimes we take for granted. 
uh, they were willing to lay, lay down their lives for to be free. So. And Colm, I want to ask you as well, because you have written a whole, a whole book. I think it was a book about um, bereaved families in Israel and, and, and the Palestinian territories, you know, an Israeli and a Palestinian who had lost a child, and you were able to tell their story and talk about how they came together. And as we said at the beginning, you know, now there's upwards of 80 people in the media, journalists, media workers who've been killed in this counteroffensive in Gaza. Yes. What I mean, do all you these... think, you know, of that issue? Yeah. Yeah, all these stories are incredibly uh, laced uh, together. What sort of courage does it take uh, to recognize the humanity of your, your, your enemy? What sort of courage does it take to, to, to say, well, we don't necessarily have to love each other and maybe we don't even have to, to like each other, but one of the things that we must do is that we must learn to uh, understand one another. And in order to understand, we have to listen to one another's stories and we have to sort of look across um, that very, very deep divide sometimes and, uh, and, and try and vault away from the deep pessimism uh, into some sort of um, uh, available light. And, um, you know, I, I have worked with, um, with people in, in, in Israel and, and, and Palestine, in particular, uh, uh, Rami Elhanan and Bassam Aramin, and um, they uh, together have the courage to say that, 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 that we are friends and that this will not end. Uh, none of this will end until we, turn to, until we learn to talk to one another. And this is what Diane did mm -hmm. when she walked into that room. She sat down and she talked to the man who took her son's life. It is incredible to hear those conversations, and as I have done as well. And um, Diane, I just want to finally ask you about, you know, another very important issue around kidnapped, around hostages. Um, when Jim was taken before he was killed, you were advised by the U.S. administration to stay quiet and to not make too much of a hubbub. And, and I think you, I think you regret that the United States and the U.K. they don't essentially do what other countries do to get their loved ones back. Where does that mission stand now? What are you hoping more from government action? Well, actually, a lot has happened, um, Christiane, since Jim and the other Americans and British were murdered by ISIS. Um, I think it, it took their um, shocking public murders really to awaken the consciences in many ways of our countries. And our country, um, President Obama um, did um, set up the U.S. hostage enterprise that is working today. And since Jim's murder in 2014, more than 100 innocent U.S. nationals have, in fact, been negotiated to freedom. So that is a part of Jim's um, legacy um, that I'm very proud of. Jim would have wanted that. He w I, I really felt after Jim was killed, our country had to do better. We could do better, that we could be concerned. Obviously, we have to deter our hostage taking also, but we need to have the backs of our brave um, citizens who go out in the world, like yourself in the Ukraine. We need to take care of one another too. Well, that's a perfect place to end, and I'm sure that is the prime message of your book as well. Diane Foley, Colin McCann, thank you both so much for thank being you. with us. Thank, thank you. you.
I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. In Russia, a crackdown also on independent journalists has forced some into exile. Yevgenia Albats is among them. She is editor-in-chief of the Russian-language independent political weekly called The New Times, and she's been based in the U.S. since 2022. She was a close friend of the Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, whose death she blames squarely on President Putin, as does Navalny's wife, Yulia. The Kremlin calls those accusations, quote, absolutely unfounded and boorish, saying that an investigation into his death is underway. And now Navalny's mother has filed a lawsuit against the inaction of the state in giving her his body. Yevgenia Albats joins Michel Martin to discuss the loss of her friend and what it means for the whole world. Thanks, Christiane. Yevgenia Albats, thank you so much for speaking with us again today. And we are all so very sorry about the circumstances. Thank you very much for inviting me. And thank you very much that you are ready, you, you're uh, willing to talk about Alexei Navalny and to remember him. He was a great guy. What, what drove him? What was the source of his vision about, not just about himself, but about what Russia could be? You know, I think that, you know, he uh, he was a naturally born politician. He was very much in love with uh, with uh, with the country, you know, in these all these letters from prison time and again. Uh, he was writing, you know, I was telling him I was there. there and he was telling Shania, I would love to find myself uh, at Machu Picchu. I would love to find myself at Barbados. But you know what? The place where I want myself the most is Moscow. So, and he believed in Russia's democratic future, and he believed that he he was the one who was capable uh, to become the real uh, leader of the country. He was prone to conducting a political reform. Anyway, he he wanted, you know, he want he was really one of those politicians who believed in common good, and who was ready to sacrifice sacrifice uh, almost everything, and as we can see, sacrifice even his life for this uh, brighter future of Russia. The, many of the headlines in the West say, who have followed his story, say, basically shocked but not surprised. Is that, does that sum it up? I mean, because obviously there had been attempts on his life before. I mean, people may remember that he was poisoned, you know, on an airplane. He was rushed to Germany, where he received, you know, medical treatment. Uh, he could have died then. So the, the, I guess the feeling is shocking, yes, but not a surprise, especially after he was sent to this prison colony in the Arctic. Um, does this, is this about right? Is this, does this sum it up? I'm not so sure about that. To be honest with you, many of us, we... We almost tended to believe that he became immortal. Uh, of course, you know, Navalny knew his risks. But, you know, in one of, you know, here, you know, on my table, you know, I have tons of his letters because I'm writing something. And in one of his letters, you know, when I complained to him, after I complained to him, 
that I hate to die in exile. Uh, you know, and he responded to me, Zhenya, uh, that's my nickname, you know, there is no, death doesn't exist. You know, he was a very deeply religious man. And, uh, you know, and also in another letter that he sent to me, you know, shortly after he returned back from uh, Germany, uh, where, you know, he recovered after Putin tried to kill him first time. And people were talking about him in Moscow, like, you know, the guy who managed to overcome death. It was almost about, you know, his resurrection. And I think Putin was deadly afraid of that, of that myth that, you know, people were making out of Navalny. But anyway, you know, that's the letter. I can show you just, it's, and he wrote in this letter that, Jenny, uh, everything is going to be okay. Okay, and I'm not, uh, I'm not complaining about anything. I'm not pity about anything. And you shouldn't. Everything is going to be fine, just fine. And even if it doesn't, we uh, can uh, console ourselves that we were honest people. That was written in the Moscow-based jail number 99-1. And he was absolutely aware that Putin was going to keep him in jail as long as Putin was alive. Because Putin saw him as an alternative. That's why he killed him. He tried to break him. He tortured him. I'm saying he, I mean Putin himself. Everything with respect to Navalny was done at the orders of this top guy. How do you, how do you know this? Evgenia, how do you know this? You know, because we have a very good sources or we know, we knew that when Navalny was dying, uh, when he was on hunger strike for 22 days, you know, we, uh, we were looking for ways and means, you know, to save him. And so we knew that all the decisions were made by Putin himself. Now, he was, uh, uh, and, you know, Navalny was, was alternative to Putin and Putin did understand that that the guy was who was capable to challenge him. So, and that's why, you know, they, for three years on the road, he was uh, put in the torturous conditions. He spent uh, just, uh, you know, in the last two years, he spent 308 days in the solitary punishment cell. He wasn't allowed any commissary. He was constantly hungry. They were bringing food to his cell, they were shown food to him and then dumped. They, they kept him in this solitary punishment cell. It was suffocating uh, hot during the summer and it was freezing cold during the uh, winter. There was never, there was never was cold uh, hot water in the tub. There was just a you know, a hole uh, in the floor instead of a, a toilet. He was unable, even when he was sick, when he his pneumonia, he couldn't lay on his bank because, you know, he wasn't allowed. His bank was attached to, uh, to the wall from five o'clock in the morning to late at night. What you're saying is his conditions were extremely harsh and meant to be demeaning and meant to break his spirit. So, exactly. so all of the above. But, but why now? If, if, as you believe, as much of the world believes, that this death was ordered 
Now, why now? For Putin, it was very important to give this notion that the entire country, the entire Russia, was supporting his war of aggression against Ukraine. That he had, you know, he has this, uh, he has this support. So in March of, in March, uh, in the, in the, this coming March, uh, there are so-called elections in Russia. Of course, it's not elections going to be acclamation or electoral procedure, whatever. It's not elections. So the order from Kremlin. 80% of Russians should pretend that they voted for Putin. And they cannot just, you know, write down all these numbers because, you know, they're obviously, uh, they cannot do this. So uh, that's why, you know, he invited Tucker Carlson to make this interview, to present himself as, uh, uh, as, uh, as the one who is real, true leader of Russia. And Navalny was a constant problem because Navalny presented an alternative. And Navalny, even being in this uh, maximum security prison in the Arctic Circle, 61 kilometers of the, uh, to, uh, of the, to the, uh, of the Arctic Circle, he, uh, he called people uh, not to vote for Putin. He did it, you know, he conducted these uh, anti-Putin uh, campaign sitting in the maximum security prison and people listen to him. And we see, we see the numbers, which we see that independent pollsters, whenever, you know, as little as, uh, uh, you know, as hard as it is for them to do any job in Russia, they, uh, they, they measure that more and more Russians uh, uh, ask for the end of the war. And uh, over 50% of Russians, you know, uh, asked for the uh, end of the war. And look, you know, now that when they killed uh, uh, Navalny, thousands and thousands of Russians, they are bringing flowers to this, uh, all these memorials across the country. Uh, 390 people were already arrested for that, just for mourning, just for grieving. Putin realizes because he's, they see that Navalny is seen by much, especially young Russians, as their leader. One of the, you mentioned that Tucker Carlson, the former Fox News personality, who did this interview with Putin for his. Um, digital outlet. I don't even know what to describe it. I mean, it was, a, you know, sort of a softball. There were no challenging questions asked. And he allowed Putin to kind of ramble on about his, you know, his, his sort of false version sort of of history. Does this mean that Putin is weak or does this mean that Putin is strong? I guess that would be the question. I think that Putin, uh, when Tucker Carlson interview happened, Putin realized that the West is weak, not him, Putin weak, but the West is extraordinarily weak, that the West is unable to support Ukraine, that the US Congress is unable uh, to, uh, to pass uh, this bill that would allow to provide Ukrainian with weapons. That's why Ukraine is losing the war. He realized that basically, he overcame the situation when he was a pariah. He was an outcast. And all of a sudden, with the, with the help of Tucker Carlson and hundreds of millions of views, he got back on the world stage. And therefore, you know, he resolved this problem. He's winning the war in Ukraine. 
uh, Americans no longer support uh, Ukrainians and ready to give up. And therefore, the only problem he was left with was Alexei Navalny. You, you have spent a lot of time in the United States. And as you noted, you are living here in exile um, now. What do you make of why the United States, or at least certain sectors in the United States, are having such a difficult time supporting Ukraine or at least challenging, you know, Putin's thirst for power. What, what do you make of it? How do you understand this? Obviously, you know, I'm a, a Russian journalist and academic, and I, I prefer not to talk about politics of other countries, but I watch your primaries. I always covered primaries in the United States. And we discussed, you know, the last letter, so you know, the last letter I sent to Alyosha, that's his nickname. In Russia, we go by the nickname, was on February 9th, 2024. So, you know, 10 days ago. Uh, and uh, the entire letter was about U.S. primaries. And, linked, and there was U.S. primaries and what's happening to Trump. What kind of court cases and uh, numbers and uh, numbers, you know, that Biden is, uh, you know, is getting a lot of you know, negative publicity, all this, everything. Long, long letter, because we discussed this constantly with uh, Alexei over letters. So, and uh, I think it is, as far as my understanding, uh, the uh, Republican caucus, uh, caucus in the House of Representatives, they got an order from the plausible uh, second-time president, from uh, Donald Trump, not to support the bill. And I think they just follow the orders because the the choice is for them that if Trump, you know, everybody saw uh, the fate of that of Liz Cheney, uh, who was a prominent conservative, who was, uh, you know, uh, daughter of a very prominent conservative, etc., and who went against Trump, was kicked out uh, of the Congress. So, and I think that, unfortunately, some uh, politicians in GOP, they forgot about the common good and all they care about is about uh, pork barrels. That's it. I heard you say that you you try as a Russian journalist and as a Russian you know academic not to you know involve yourself in the um, politics of another country. But you are here now, and Americans do listen to you. I was wondering if you would, just give your thoughts about why Americans should continue to care about this. I mean, and we're sort of in reporting on this, you hear different things about why Americans have a waning interest in Ukraine. I mean, if you would just give us your sense of why you think Americans should continue to care about this. I think there is a lack of understanding of all the dangers that comes out of Putin. Donald Trump is definitely admires Putin. For him, he is a role model. So just think about that. If this evil man who uh, runs Russia now, who is uh, who is running, you know, who is sitting in Kremlin for already for twenty four years and intends to sit for another 12 years, more than Stalin uh, was in Kremlin. So if this kind of man uh, who is ready to kill around and to kill his, uh, his opponents, if he's a role model for Donald Trump, then what kind of a guy you're going to bring into the White House uh, again in November of 2024? Uh, I think that uh, Americans 
you know, probably, um, probably there is a lack of understanding that Putin is very much like Hitler back in 1939 in Germany when he was about to start the World War uh, II, which ended up with uh, uh, with uh, 60 million dead across uh, Europe and a lot of Americans died in that war as well. Putin is not going to stop in Ukraine. If he's going to win in Ukraine, he's going to go further. He's going to uh, attack Finland, he was going to attack Poland, he's going to attack Baltic nations, because Putin is about reinstating not the Soviet Union, he's about reinstating of the Russian Empire. And don't want to, uh, to draw all these apocalypses, but be aware, Putin is not going to stop. And he's an evil man. And I think that you Americans can take a pride in stopping the evil man, the way you became part of the coalition which stopped Adolf Hitler back 75 years ago. That's what I would say. Is there anything that gives you hope for a better future for Russia right now? You mentioned that Navalny, what in part uh, kept him going was his profound faith. Is there anything that's giving you hope right now? You know what? Should have asked me this question three days ago, I would say no. I'm going to die, you know. Uh, I'm not going to return back to Moscow, and I, I won't see my country uh, as a normal democratic country. But yesterday, his uh, wife, his widow, Alexei Navalny's widow, Yulia Navalny, came out, and she said, that I am going to continue the kind of fight my late husband uh, ran for all these decades. I'm going to pick up this, his banner and I'm going to carry on. And this, you know, already, you know, almost six million people watched her statement on YouTube. And Trust me, there will be, you know, uh, millions and millions more. So uh, I think that now that uh, Yulia Navalny said that she was going to, uh, to do, or to keep doing, to keep the kind of fight her late husband uh, conducted for so many decades, it gives some hope. At least it's, it, it comes with huge risk for her personally, because Putin is not going to stop, because he's an evil and a killer. Uh, and, um, but at least uh, Russian society, Russian opposition, people of goodwill, now uh, we have a leader who will try um, who will try to lead and to overcome. Evgeny Albats, thank you for speaking with us once again at, at what I know is a very difficult time for you. So thank you for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Agnello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. 
We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hack Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. And finally, life and art and self-imposed exile. Alexei Radmansky is one of the world's most acclaimed classical choreographers with roots in both Ukraine and Russia. In 2022, he was preparing a new ballet at Russia's Bolshoi when Moscow invaded and he decided to leave. He's now an artist in residence of the New York City Ballet and his first work there, Solitude, premiered last week and is dedicated to the victims of the war. Alexei Radmansky joins me from New York. Welcome to the program, Alexei. Thank you for having me. I wonder just what you think, because you obviously come from this region and you just heard Yevgenia Albats talk about, you know, the, the tragedy of what's happening in the, la- in the land that you, that you left and yourself exiled from. My thoughts are with Ukraine. That's where my family lives. That's where I was raised. My mom is Russian, my father is from Kiev, uh, and um, I, uh, what, is, what is going on, and you see no end to it, is just so horrible. So my, my, my heart and my thoughts are with Ukraine now. And, and uh, Alexei, you have, as we said, um, become the artist in residence at the City Ballet. And you have produced now your first work for them called Solitude. Tell us about it, because I know that you based at least part of it, some of the imaging and the body, you know, the body language on a real situation that happened here. And we will show the picture when you talk to about it, talk to us about it. And it is a sad picture. Um, yeah, the initial impulse uh, for this ballet was uh, a, a, a photograph uh, from um, the, the Russian crime scene in Ukraine, the bus stop that was hit by the missile, uh, killing a few people, among them the boy, uh, and uh, you see the father sitting by, uh, next to his body, holding his hand. Uh, as I learned later, the boy was an aspiring dancer. He was 13 years old, the ballroom dancer. When you see this picture, you can't unsee it, and it's been haunting me uh, all this time. It happened in uh, summer uh, 22. And then when I was preparing my first ballet for uh, New York City Ballet as a choreographer in residence, I've been listening to Gustav Mahler's symphonies, and. Uh, I had this image in mind, and I understood that I, I, I can't let it go. This, the, 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 the emotions and the, um, you know, I look at things with choreographer's eyes, and I, I, I read body language. What this image tells you, the, the profound sadness and uh, the tragedy, the shoulders dropped, the, the void in the uh, gaze of the father. Um, I, I wanted to build a Alexei, ballet around I'm going it. To, it's, a, it's a remarkable thing. It's a remarkable idea to take that image and build a whole ballet. And I'm going to play um, a, a, a clip that, that we can and see whether we can recognize some of that body language in the clip that we've shown.
Tell me about that clip. I'm not sure it's exactly the one that I was thinking of, but tell me about it. Um, the ballet starts and ends with a uh, with a figure of uh, uh, father uh, and and the boy. Um, this is uh, close to the end of it. And um, when I started choreographing, working with the dancers in the studio, it was very challenging time and moments because, you know, in ballet, uh, we 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 don't we don't go with this reality. It's more um, um, it's more a contemporary dance field, uh, dance uh, on point with the classical positions. Something that actually is designed to take you away from reality. Um, is an uncomfortable coexistence and uh, I almost felt like I'm not even allowed to go in that territory but uh, with the help of extraordinary Mahler's music and the, and the beautiful dancers of New York City Ballet I think we, we built something that uh, resonated and um, uh, at, the, at the opening night I felt uh, uh, um, there was a cathartic feeling and uh, I was glad and satisfied to hear there is emotional response from the dancers and from the spectators as well. Uh, so I was going to ask you about that because as you know, you know, I'm sitting here in Kyiv, you're there in New York, and the American Congress is so far blocking um, aid to the fighters here on the front line and it's making a difference. And I just wondered whether you got a sense from the audience and probably the dancers as well as what they feel about this battle uh, after two years, whether they think it's, you know, two years, they've got other things to think about or whether, you know, the plight of this country defending democracy and freedom still is making an impact where you are. Yes, I do feel that uh, Ukraine is not um, as prominent in uh, everyday's news and the people's thoughts as before it, uh, when this war started. But my goal was to remind people of what is going on and to, to make them feel the pain and to make them uh, thinking of helping Ukraine more. Because without Americans' help, I don't think Ukraine can win. The American help is vital for the fight that Ukrainians are uh, fighting now, fighting for their existence, for their culture, for their language, for their land. You know, you talk about culture, and I today was speaking to the great Ukrainian novelist, Andrei Kurkov, and there are bookstores and all sorts of cultural, particularly bookstores, opening here. And he talked about, you know, culture and, and, and actually fighting to maintain the fact of Ukrainian statehood, nationhood, culture, and history. And so it's not just a, you know, a, an, a, an artistic thing or something to do on the side. It's the defense of culture is also part of fighting this war. Do you feel that? Yeah, I do. And I see two aspects to it. First, I do feel that it's, uh, uh, despite the tragedy of what is going on, I think it's a renaissance of Ukrainian culture. Because many people who were between two cultures, like myself, uh, I, uh, I received my ballet education in Russia and uh, I staged many, ba many ballets uh, uh, with both Mariinsky and the Bolshoi. But I am from Kiev and I feel more and more Ukrainian now. 
Uh, and I think there are many people like me, and also I think that uh, Ukrainian artists are now seen and recognized because uh, the whole history of uh, domination of uh, Russian Empire over Ukraine and then Soviet Empire and the post-Soviet um, you know, times, it's all the same. The, the, the best, the most talented Ukrainian artists were uh, almost like swallowed by, by Russia and they became integral part of Russian culture. Many artists who came from Ukraine, grew up there and received their education there are still called Russian artists. I have always been called a Russian choreographer. And of course there is a big part of, 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 of Russia in me, but uh, I think it, it, is, uh, it is a spotlight on Ukraine uh, at the moment. Um, at the same time, Ukraine is losing so much, so many museums, libraries, clubs, uh, um, art institutions, schools are destroyed. Uh, if, you, if you talk about ballet, imagine how many ballet students left Ukraine and now are studying abroad. They will graduate and they will join uh, companies in America and Europe and will be lost for, for Ukraine. Ukrainian, big Ukrainian companies keep performing under constant shellings. Uh, when the air raid alarm sounds, the performance stops, they go to the shelter and sometimes they continue, sometimes they don't. But big companies in yeah. Kiev, Kharkiv, Odessa, Lviv, they keep performing and I think it's extraordinary. Yeah. They, they show real heroism. Yeah. Uh, I also wanted to add that many artists are killed, they took up arms and uh, my former colleagues from Kiev, uh, who I worked with before, they were killed by Russians. I, I, I know and I hear you and I've had the pleasure of actually witnessing some of these fantastic performances under the conditions that you're describing now here still going on even in the last two years. And, um, you know, I also know that you helped with the refugee ballet group, the, the, the theater that came out and was, you know, housed and trained and, and, and directed uh, in the Netherlands and has done, you know, um, performances in the United States. That must have been interesting for you as well to, to promote the ballet, even with these, uh, with, with people who've had to leave. That was one of the most meaningful experiences of my artistic life. Um, the, the, these refugee dancers, they were gathered in, in The Hague in Netherlands. They came from different backgrounds, some from bigger companies, some from small companies, some contemporary dancers, and uh, even the students who just graduated never had any professional experience. So we mounted production of Giselle and we showed it in the best stages in the world, uh, London's Coliseum, Kennedy Center in Washington, and uh, Segestrom Center in uh, California. And uh, I can't describe the feeling that we all had, you know, standing on stage at the end of the show, uh, singing Ukrainian anthem. It's a mixture of uh, pain, pride, determination, and hope. That was really remarkable. And in our California performances, we were joined by the Ukrainian hero soldier uh, who lost both of his legs. Uh, uh, he saw the performance of uh, United Ukrainian Ballet in Washington and he came backstage uh, to congratulate. My wife told me later that she mm -hmm. thought that 
uh, her heart will break. You know, brilliant yeah. guy, very young and uh, very articulate, brilliant Ukrainian uh, speaker. He said, I, I love what yeah. you do and I want to join you. And then a couple of months later, he was performing with us in California. Um, That's a great story to end with. That was very inspiring. Mm. Alexei Ratmansky, thank you so much. And that is it for now. Thank you all for watching and goodbye from Kyiv. We'll be back from here again tomorrow night. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.